Sylvia and me. Sylvia and Sylvia and me. Sylvia and me. Sylvia and me. Sylvia and me. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. I'm Crystal Bird Farmer. I'm a writer and speaker, and I work with intentional communities and the polyamorous community. Welcome to Sylvia and me. Crystal, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, and I know you're, you're at school, as you said, you're a writer, you're an educator, um, and your full name is Crystal Bird Farmer, and you're an engineer turned educator. I'm going to read this, an organizer and speaker who focusing, focuses on co-housing Black and polyamorous communities. You serve on the editorial review board of Communities Magazine, and you're passionate about encouraging people to change their perspectives on diversity, relationships, and the world. And you live in Gastonia, North Carolina, where you are right now. Um, the book that you wrote is called The Token, common sense ideas for increasing diversity in your organization. Sounds very complex. What I'd like to know is, can we go back to some of your background, where you grew up, grew up and then um, you know, we'll go from there. Okay, yeah, so I grew up here in Gastonia, North Carolina. It's a medium-sized city outside of Charlotte. So I grew up in a majority Black and low-income community. So um, I'm a Black woman. I grew up with mostly surrounded by Black people until I got into middle school and high school. Um, I went to public school and I went to University of South Carolina for college. I got two degrees, one in mechanical engineering and one in Russian studies. Um, so I decided to go the engineering route, and I was an engineer for about six years um, until my daughter was about four or five. She has autism, and she needed a lot of care, and that's when I quit my engineering job, became a freelancer, and dived into the world of, of self-directed learning. So I tried to figure out how I could educate her without her being uh, stressed out by traditional schooling. And that's how we got Gastonia Freedom School, which is the school that I founded and I work at. Um, at the same time, I was exploring co-housing communities, which are a type of intentional community. So those are communities where people come together with kind of a shared vision and they design the housing. They are involved in the process from beginning all the way to moving in. So intentional communities are something that has been around forever. If you think of like Oneida community um, in the early 1900s, all the way to the communes of the 60s, those are intentional communities. They look a little bit different nowadays, but there are still people who are seeking community. Um, and what I found when I, when I wanted to seek community was that most of those communities were kind of white and middle class and weren't a good fit for me. Well, one of the things that I wanted to, we will get into that in a couple of minutes, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, you talked about self-directed learning. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so that's the idea that as children, we kind of learn things, you know, on our own. You know, you never have to teach a child how to walk. You know, they start pulling themselves up. They start experimenting with their body. 
um, and they, they learn to walk mostly on their own. Um, the idea of self-directed learning is that that process continues throughout our entire lives. We don't need somebody to sit in front of us and say, this is what you need to know. So, um, you know, if you think of kind of like kids growing up back in the 1800s in rural farms, they learned by working with their parents. They were milking cows, they were growing crops, they didn't sit down for eight hours a day and read books. And so self-directed learning is all about helping children to learn in a way that's comfortable for them, in a way that they enjoy learning. And instead of having this kind of prescribed curriculum in North Carolina, they call it the standard course of study. Instead of saying, okay, by the time you're 18, you need to know, you know, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, you need to be able to name all the presidents, you need to be able to describe what uh, the cell of an organism looks like. Instead of doing that, we say, what are you interested in? What are things that are really cool to you? And then we give them the resources to figure that out, to learn what there is to learn about the world. So we have children here who are interested in carpets. They're interested in video games. Um, they like watching SpongeBob and they're getting what they need as an education without me saying, okay, you, you're failing in this part of your world because you haven't learned this yet. They're still learning. They're just learning in a way that is comfortable for them. Okay. So you mentioned before that, you know, where you grew up, the school that you went to, you went to public school. Um, and uh, I believe in in middle school or junior high, whatever we call it, in my day it was junior high and then high school, um, there was busing involved. Mm -hmm. And you wound up in, uh, as you said, you grew up, uh, you grew up in a uh, black, um, a low income uh, neighborhood, yet the busing, where, where were the schools that you wound up going to that everyone things busing and, and, and yay, what were you all of a sudden brought into? Yeah, so I was, I was bused across town, so maybe a 20 minute drive away from my home community. And I was in a majority white school with majority white teachers, um, a lot of middle-class kids. There were still some lower income white and black kids because that's what the demographic of Gastonia is. But since I was kind of testing in the academically advanced area, I was in classrooms where I was the only black kid or there was one or two of us. And most of the people around me were, were, were had more income, were used to going out to eat. They had clothes that weren't from the thrift store. So their experiences of the world were a lot different than my experience of the world. And I had to figure out what do I do to make sure that I'm in middle school is, is awful as far as like social socially. So you know, how do I make friends? What do I do with these people? A lot of times we experience kids not wanting to come to my house because it was on the, the bad side of town. And I had never realized that until I got into middle school. So how did that affect what you wound up doing um, in life? Uh, how, how did that kind of mold what you, what you were doing now? Yeah, so I, for whatever reason, I was really attuned to the differences. And even though I enjoyed being in school, I loved the academic parts of it. I was always aware of how different everything was, of how I wasn't fitting in 
of the changes that I needed to make. And I was pretty critical. One of my high school papers was, was criticizing the standardized testing system of, um, of school. So I was pretty critical. You there. Yeah, of the way that school is done. And so even though I enjoyed the experience of school, I was looking for ways that we could be different, things that we could do differently. I'd always decided, but once I get out of college, I'm going to run for a school board and then I'll be, you know, I'll make some changes. But what actually happened is I had my daughter and as soon as I thought about putting her into traditional school, I was like, no, I'm never going to make her go through what I had to go through, especially now knowing that she had some differences that affected the way that she learned. Okay, so now we're going to get, we have some background um, on you, and I'd like to, one, read a review of the book um, that you just wrote, uh, The Token. Um, And this is what it said. This is the book that is going to save you from theory and guilt trips disguised as training or solutions to issues of equity and diversity. Crystal has brilliantly highlighted her personal experiences as a means of examining and learning how biases affect some black women in particular and many intentional communities across age and gender among other differences. She then brings in the history and pattern of anti-Black racism in particular and offers resources and conversation prompts to work through what she brings up in these pages. I found this book refreshing in its departure from scholarly research over real life experiences, which is what you talked about as far as uh, school goes, feelings that words often fail and so much more in terms of nuance and layers. I love this and I'm grateful to Crystal for adding her perspectives to the conversation about relationships and diversity without apology and with no problem being dynamic and human in her approach. That's a lot and it says a lot about the fact that what you just talked about you put in this book. So the first thing I'd like to ask is why the token? Why that terminology? Um, So I think that's something that people can kind of identify immediately when they think of a token, they think, okay, somebody who is representing something. Um, And so I've often found that when I'm in organizations or part of communities, that I'm sometimes looked at as the token. I'm supposed to explain my experience as a Black woman. I'm supposed to help bring in other people that look like me. Um, So I, I decided instead of having people unwittingly offend people by calling them a token. I want people to think of me as their token, to go to me for answers, to read my book and get all those questions out before they turn to the people in their community who are already kind of marginalized. And instead of calling them tokens, call me a token. And um, I've heard you say that you've written this book not for people who have no idea or no acceptance that there are differences, that they that there are exclusions, that exclusivity does exist, that you're looking for people, that this is a book really for people who realize some of the biases, realizes the exclusions, realizes what's going on, and want to figure out how to um, be an inclusive society. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know there are three, three specific words that you uh, talk about, um, bias, 
privilege, and microaggression. Can you talk about microaggression? A lot of people have not really heard that word before. And, and what do you mean by that? Yeah, so microaggression is an act or a word or, or, or actions or speech that, that pulls somebody's identity out and, and recognizes their identity um, in a way that sets them apart from the rest of the group. So if I'm a black woman and I'm in a majority white group, somebody may say, oh, I love your hair. And if I know that person, yeah, they might think that my hair is different today. And so they might be saying that they love it. But if I'm the only black person and I've never met them, they're thinking, oh, my hair is different from them. They've never seen hair like this. And so now they're, they're pointing me out as somebody different. And what that does, is it creates a sense of otherness. It makes you the other. And instead of me feeling included and welcome, I feel like, oh, now you want something from me. Now you're, you're, you're looking at me as, as something to educate you or to please you, you know, to, to show that, oh, wow, you're, you're, you're different, you're special. Um, so it happens a lot in the disability community. If somebody's using a wheelchair or they're missing a limb, the first thing somebody will ask is like, oh, did you have an injury or what happened? And somebody's showing up to a community meeting. They're not showing up to talk about themselves, talk about their injury. They're here to be a part of the community. And so unless your group is focused around that particular thing, it's not appropriate to, to ask about that. So microaggressions are a hard thing because um, people usually have really good intentions. They're really you know, trying to connect and trying to be friendly and welcoming. But when they're pointing out something that's different about a person, it can be harmful. So how... So, okay, I, I get what you're talking about. How do you start changing that culture? How do you start changing you know, that society? What, what are some of the things that people can, because it's almost as if you have to really think about it um, because for some people it just comes naturally. They don't in essence really mean anything buy it or they don't think they do. And so what do you suggest people can do? And I know you talk a lot about organizations. It's not specifically for, you know, people just out in, in society, you know, go, but it's organizations. And, and from that, they could bring it into their personal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote this book for people who are leaders of groups, and it can be anything from a co-housing community to a knitting group. But it's really for people who are interested in making their, their organization more inclusive because there's specific work that needs to be done in that area. But also if in your normal life and you start interacting with people who are different, then these are good things to remember too. So what you can do is you have to make a lot of that unconscious stuff more conscious. So if you are white, if you're middle-class, if you're American, then you have certain ways of being and doing things that you're just kind of used to. And there are people who aren't those things and they have a different experience of the world. So assuming that your experience is always gonna to apply to other people's experiences is, is kind of wrong. So um, it's, it's just a way of being more aware that people have these experiences. And you do that by researching, by listening to people like me talk about ways that they, um, ways that they have different experiences of the world. And so, um, I'm trying to think of an example. 
Like um, one thing that I encounter a lot is when we're in meetings or when we're having conversations with people, for instance, over Thanksgiving, I was with my um, some family members and a lot of black families are really loud and they're just like happy and they're just yelling at each other. And if I translate them and I put them into a white family, that white family might be thinking, oh my God, they're mad at each other. There's something going on, there's trouble. And that's just two different experiences of the world and ways of relating. So it's important for the white family to realize, okay, they're not mad. They're just relating to each other in a different way. And it involves loudness. And it's okay for them to say, hey, can you quiet it down? But it's also okay for them to be like, well, that's that's the way they are. And maybe we're just going to do our thing the way that we do it. Okay. So um, there are different cultures. And what we don't want to lose is our traditions, our, who we are as far as a culture goes, but you talk about inclusivity. Um, so how do you do that without losing um, your, your own culture in trying to mix everything where you're, you're being inclusive, but you're not losing your part of your culture. So you're aware that differences do exist no matter what if, if whether you're you're black you're white you're a single mom you're italian you're jewish if i don't name everything someone's going to say something so i'm going to stop right here but what i'm trying to bring out is how do you um meld this together so that you're really being inclusive but you're also acknowledging that um, you're being respectful to other people's culture or up upbringing. Yeah, I think it's really important to do some reflection about what is your own culture and what do you value about that culture? So I've, I've heard a lot of people say to me, I've never thought about myself as white or white people have no culture. And I don't think that's true. So I think you kind of have to think, what does my family do at gatherings or what are ways that I like interacting with the world? Who do I talk to? Um, how do I talk to? What kind of rituals do we have as far as greeting each other or saying goodbye? And really saying, what are those? What of those are really important to you? And then when you bring it into an organization, what is our organization's culture? What is important for us to do to stay connected to each other? And then that's when you, when you know what those things are that you value, you can say, this is what we want to keep. And now we can start looking at other ways, other practices of doing things, and we can bring those in. So um, there's a, a resource that I have in there by Tima Okun, and it's called White Supremacy Culture. And it points out a lot of things that are part of this kind of white middle class standard American culture. And some of those things are okay, and some of those things are harmful, like perfectionism. Um, she calls it worship of the written word is something that people value in this majority culture that we're in. And so it's important to think about those things and think, okay, is this really bringing value and worth to our group, to our lives, or is it something that we can change? Okay. Um, one thing that I'd like to clarify, because you did use the terminology, um, you said white supremacy, whereas in today's world right now, that means something um, something violent, something 
dangerous. It's been associated with that. So can you kind of define what you're talking about? Because I know that's not what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So when Oaken used the word white supremacy, she was talking about um, the way that our culture is set up to benefit people who are white. And this is not something that we've done intentionally. This is something that started in the 1500s and 1600s and has evolved through what we think of as Western culture. And that idea is that whatever white people do and honor is the best. And that plays out in different ways in our culture. So um, like I mentioned, the written word, you know, so as Americans, we're very big on having formal written agreement. If something is documented, then, it's, then it has value, whereas opposed to there may be some other cultures that aren't Western cultures that are more about storytelling, that are more about oral traditions. And that is all, is, it's not that people who like the written word are white supremacists. It's just that their culture is valuing things that are made by white people more than things that are made by other people. Okay, and when you talk about other people, one of the things is that you're not just talking about inclusivity um, in the black community, you're talking about um, the you know, gay rights and people with disabilities and, and there's so many others. So um, one of the things that you do talk about is organizations. Where does an organization start? to what is the starting point? I know you talked about meeting space, office space, how sitting around a table. So leader of an organization, thinking about all of these different things, what would you say are the most important things for them to think about, to take into account? Um, well, first, I, I think they have to identify what kind of diversity they want. And that may seem kind of crass, but in reality, if you're like, you're in Connecticut, I'm in North Carolina, there's a different number proportion of black people in those areas. So you have to think about if we want more ethnic diversity, what kind of ethnic diversity is already out there in the local community? Um, if you want people with disabilities, there's gonna be different ways that disability is expressed. So you have to think about if I want more people who are autistic, the changes that I need to make are going to be a lot different than people who are wheelchair users. So you have to think about what diversity do we want? And then you have to think about what do those specific groups of people need? So in the book, I talk about, you mentioned sitting at a table, some people with disabilities, maybe arthritis or something like that, sitting at a table might be easier for them than sitting on the floor and having to get up and get, get off of the floor. Um, if you're talking about people with sensory sensitivities, having a room filled with incense might be completely distracting and harmful for them to even participate in. So um, those are things that you have to think about specifically about that type of person. Um, so once you, you know what kind of diversity you're looking for, then you have to actually educate yourself about what those people go through. And in the book, I say, you do not go to the one person in your group who has that identity and ask them. You ask people like me, you go on the internet, you buy books, you look for resources for people who are trained, who people who are educators who are willing to, to give this information instead of asking people to do labor without, without their consent, really. 
Well, it's also, you go and ask that one person, it's like you're asking that token person instead of, uh, and it's only their perception, what, what they think, instead of if you're looking to bring in more people, there might be, as you said, there might be a broader want and need um, instead of just looking at, at that, that one particular person and asking them um, what it is. Uh, because again, you're only including that one person instead of looking to expand and include more people. Um, the other thing, the other two words you used are bias and privilege. Can you just quickly talk a little bit about those two words? Yeah, so privilege is um, something that's related to our identity. So my identity is Black woman, bisexual, autistic. Um, I have other disabilities. So my identity is, is just who I am. It's not something that I wanted. It's not something that I can change easily. It's not something that I picked off from a shelf. So with identities, we have privilege associated with them. And privilege is not something that's individual. It's something that comes from this, co this culture that we live in. So in America, people who are white have more privilege than people who are Black. People who are able-bodied have more privilege than people with disabilities. And that's not anybody's fault. And if you have more privilege, it's not that you are, you know, have a completely easy, carefree life. You're still going to have difficulties. You're still going to have to do things that, that normal people, regular people do in their lives. Um, privilege just means that there are some parts of your life that weren't harder because of your identity. And then bias is um, also related to identities in that um, we have these subconscious assumptions about people. And, you know, it's not our fault that we have them. It's just that they're there. They're trained into us through society. Um, so when um, you see a person, you're automatically kind of categorizing them in your brain because that's what we need to do as humans so that we can kind of get along and, and continue surviving. Um, and so some of those categories are going to be harmful. Some of the assumptions you make are going to be wrong. And we just have to be more aware of the assumptions we're making. And if, especially if those assumptions are going to cause us to exclude someone from community or say that they're not a good fit. Well, I'm glad you, I like your definition of privilege because people use that word, again, it's a word and people use it um, in such a different way um that they think this person is privileged and they just look at certain you know certain aspects and figure they've never seen anything nothing wrong has ever gone uh wrong in their life they've had a perfect life and you know who are they to say anything because they're in the privileged class or whatever we want to call it um one there's a saying that you have get it in the air what is that all about um, so that's just just elevating all of these ideas about identity and and putting it into your everyday talking and your consciousness, because what I found is that if people are kind of comfortable in their community and they like what they're doing, they like who they're around, they never think about these differences that people have. So if you're in a place and you're part of the majority, then you never really think about um, what people who are in the minority are experiencing. And the way that you start thinking about that is that you start bringing it up, not just when that minority person is in the room, but when you're among people who already look like you. And so for white people, that means talking about 
race and talking about racial injustice, talking about bias that they might have. And it requires a little bit of vulnerability because I've, what I've experienced is that white people aren't always comfortable talking about these things, but I, I feel like it's a duty to talk about it because you're never going to kind of get past it. You're never going to be better about it if you're not talking about it. So it's important to say, hey, I'm white. These are things that I recognize that are part of me being white. And maybe I have some biases that are good. Maybe I have some that are bad, but I, I just recognize that that's part of my life as a white person. So well, can, I ask, can I ask yeah. you a question kind of on the, the flip side? Um, does a black person have the same um, kind of um, thoughts or, or needs to talk to when they look at white people, white population? Um, do they need to talk about it? No, not talk, but the same thing that you were talking about, yeah. you know, white people realizing that biases. Mm -hmm. um, does it go towards other cultures and we can take black people, people of color? I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. So black people also have biases. We have privilege in certain areas. So we need to be just as aware of what those are. What I found is that in most in majority black communities, those conversations are already happening. So there's already people who are kind of comfortable enough to joke about the stereotypical white person or the way that black people treat newcomers to the community. So there's already kind of that consciousness a little bit more in black communities. They still need to do that work of, of keeping that going. But yeah, there's definitely a little bit more of that work being done. So that's a commonality right there. Some yes, more so than, than others. But um, what I like is that you brought up the fact that it's not just one-sided, it's, it's, it's people getting to, and it's the inclusivity, which is the whole reason behind what you're doing and the book you wrote. Um, because it, if it's not done from, from all sides, from black, white, brown, um, all different cultures, disabled, gay, if it's not really, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, but it's a start. And, you know, we always have to start someplace. This didn't happen overnight and the fix is not gonna happen overnight. But if we start, um, and, I, and I think conversations like this, educators like you um, are what's helping and will help so that maybe the next generation won't have a lot of the, or there'll be less on the, on the um, bias and all the rest and the prejudice and, and so on. Your, your book is, again, it's for people who know that something exists and wants to do something about it, not for people who don't even accept the fact or don't even realize um, that's a whole different story. Yeah, I did not write a book to explain racism to people. So that's that's something that somebody else has to do. Okay, and I wanted to ask, uh, the school, you said you founded it, the Gastonia Freedom School. Um, why is it called that? Um, because we're self-directed learning, the key to that is freedom. The freedom to choose the way that you learn, choose what you learn and how you learn. Um, and so we wanted to, to have freedom in the title just as a way to... Um, 
to, to show that freedom. And it also kind of harkens back to the civil rights movement. Um, they had Freedom Summer and they had these schools where they were teaching people how to be activists. So um, this, we're not a, a school that teaches directly how to be activists, but we're showing these kids that they have agency, that they have a voice and, and we're helping them to use that voice even at a young age. Okay. Again, the book is The Token, Common Sense Ideas for Increasing Diversity in Your Organization. Um, can you tell us where people can find out more information about you and the book? Um, so I have a website, crystalbirdfarmer.com, and I will spell it. It's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-B-Y-R-D-F-A-R-M-E-R.com. Um, that's where you can find the link to the book. The book is available on Amazon and at bookstores everywhere. Um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at Crystal Bird Farmer. Crystal, um, I think what you're doing is really, um, it's not just that it's, it's timely and, and uh, necessary, but bravo, the, the book is, is a wonderful um, resource. Um, and it's something that opens people's eyes and it does it in a way, as that reviewer said, it's not just scholarly research. That's a textbook. This is, this is better than a textbook. So Crystal, I thank you for taking the time. All the, the best, stay safe, stay healthy, and all good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. On our next podcast, I'll be talking to another extraordinary, inspiring woman who has made her mark on the world. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and, of course, our website, sylviaandme.com. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to keep up with the latest episodes. Review, rate, and take us with you wherever you are. I want to hear from you. If you know of an extraordinary, inspiring woman, please contact me at sylvia at lifeofprey.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay safe. Today's podcast is sponsored by Upper Deck, the national full-service virtual gym that has reinvented the at-home workout experience. Upper Deck has more than 30 strength and cardio classes a week. Named Best Fitness Club in the Gold Coast for 2020, Upper Deck brings the gym to you with live coaching and motivation. Upper Deck's unique classes are interactive, they have two coaches, one leading your workout and one keeping her eyes on you, providing feedback and encouragement in real time. For a free week of unlimited virtual classes with no strings attached, email info at UpperDeckFitness.com and let Upper Deck know you're a Sylvia and me listener. This has been a Life of Prey production.